We continue the shear in Nach Suvim, the story of Doniel. It is very necessary to give a brief resume of the story that we had last week. Till now, without going into it at length, actually just a couple of minutes to bring you up to date. A story about Doniel who was together with his three friends, Hananya, Michelle, and Azaria, and they studied, they were placed in a special school to study the wisdom of the custom Babylonians, and they were brought before the king, elevated to a position in the palace. The story we dealt with was the king's dream, where he had a dream, and not only did he not know the interpretation, but he also forgot the actual dream itself. None of his advisors or wise men could understand how it was possible for any person, any human, to reveal to the king what he himself had dreamt, till under threat of death, to all of them, Daniel came forth after Tzvila davening. It was revealed to him from heaven what the dream was. So he came before the king and told the king that the dream consisted of seeing, in his dream he had seen a very tall figure, a figure that was made up of different types of uh, ingredients, different types of metal. The head itself was made of gold, the Shoulders and arms were made of silver. Further down, the torso was made of copper. The legs, feet were made of iron and clay. This giant-sized statue, or figure, the king saw, and then suddenly, from out of nowhere, seemingly from nowhere, as a stone appeared, and this stone struck at the feet of clay and iron of this figure and pulverized them turned them into dust. Then, the stone continued on to upwards, and the entire statue fell apart into dust. A wind came and scattered this dust until the figure disappeared. And then the stone continued to grow until it became a mountain so large that it filled up the entire space. This was the frightening dream the king had, which he had forgotten. Now, Daniel revealed this dream to him, and now, continuing that, he interpreted the dream. What we were up to was the interpretation where he said that you, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Bavel, are what the head of the statue of this figure stands for. The head of the figure is one of gold, that means the greatest power, that is you because you rule over the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar was king of every land in the world, and after you are gone, after Bavel, will come the Persians, they represent the silver, because they too will rule over the world practically as much as practically as much as Nebuchadnezzar but not exactly as much as like silver compared to gold after the Persians they'll be destroyed and wiped out by the Greeks they too will have a vast empire, they are like copper why copper? because Zayde Kodesh says Nechishas comes from the word Nechosh, the serpent the snake and what is the symbol of the snake? What is the purpose of the snake? What did the serpent originally try to do to Adam and Chava to inject into them kfira, atheism? That will be the work of Yavon. The Greeks did not come to wipe out the Jews as Haman did. They came to inject kfira, atheism, to make them leave, to desert their faith. Therefore, they are symbolized by the copper part of this figure, then they too will be destroyed 
eradicated by the empire of the Romans. Roman Empire, which are the iron and clay. This is the future, but then suddenly there will come forth a stone, powerful rock, and this rock will destroy, will turn to dust all of this figure, all the remains of this figure past and present at that time. This rock is Moshiach. Moshiach will come, will destroy all the enemies of the Jews, the large empire or empires that will exist at that time, and they will all turn to dust, as the Pasuk says, that Esau will be considered as straw, and Beis Yaakov, Jews will be like fire, Beis Yosef will be like a flame, a torch. This torch will consume completely the straw of Esau, Esau representing the Amalek's the evil forces that will exist in the world, this will all be destroyed by Moshiach. This is the interpretation, and Nebuchadnezzar sat there transfixed, as though in a hypnotic state. When Daniel was finished, he leaped off his throne and bowed down before Daniel and said, in order that they bring sacrifices, to sacrifice to Daniel. He considered him now his idol. In fact, he changed his name from Daniel to Belshazzar, which means the idol of Babel. Daniel rejected this immediately and said, It is not me, it is not my wisdom, it was revealed to me by Hashem. And Hanetzah cried out, It is true that Hashem, who holikim, Hashem of the Jews, is the only Hashem that exists. This I recognize now, he said. So with this, he elevated Daniel to the highest post in the land. Highest position possible, Daniel made one request. That was that his three friends, too, be granted this top position in the kingdom. This was the end of the first chapter. Here we come to an amazing turn of events. Remember the words of the Uchadetza. Uchadetza said, I recognize now that Hashem of the Jews is the only deity, the only one that should be worshipped, and that should have been the end of that. Yet, we find very shortly afterwards, Buchanetza turned and became so evil, he tried to destroy the faith in Hashem by the Jews. This second part. We'll get the details of that soon. Let's first analyze this and note that with this we can answer certain questions that seem to torture the minds of many people today. First place, a simple question, simple answer. How come that Buchadnezzar, when he actually witnessed the miracle, should then turn about and stop believing? Not only stop believing, but try to inject a kefira, a denial of faith, into the Jews. And that, of course, we see today too. We see this Lahavdil in Jews themselves. Many Jews who comes to Yom Kippur, they very deeply regret the sins they committed. They are filled with remorse and repentance. Uh, a moment later, a day later, a week later, they go back to their evil ways. Uh, in Kippur, they spoke with such a feeling of closeness, of fear and awe and respect before Hashem. How do they go and turn away from Hashem afterwards? The answer is, of course, that, as the Gemara says, every Jew honestly says to Hashem, honestly, truthfully, in the depth of my heart I say, 
It is my desire, truly, to serve you very devotedly and very sincerely. But I have an acid in my heart. There is an acid called a satan, the Yitzhahara, constantly attacks, constantly tries to mislead me, and through the temptations that he presents, draws me away from you. I was positive I could serve you henceforth, and then suddenly I found that I became a victim to this temptation, this evil inclination. Of course, it's a weak excuse, but it is something that is logical. We can understand this. What is much more difficult to understand is, especially today, we would presume that the Goyim are not dumb. Because the Gemara says that Chachma, wisdom, is found by the Goyim too. They do not have Torah. They do have wisdom. They are wise. They are clever. They are learned. And their minds are deep enough to delve into and understand and to rationalize, to learn from past experience. They can easily recall in history the number of kingdoms, kings, leaders of empires that rose up, became very great, became worldwide, and their undoing was caused by their attacks against the tiny number of Jews, tiny compared to any other country, any other faith. These Jews, whom they tried to trample upon, destroy completely, the Jews remained. These empires were gone and forgotten, one after the other. How is it possible? Well, this is not a matter of faith. This is not a matter of Yitzhahara, evil inclination. This is a matter of fact. This is a matter where a nation would know that if, through a short memory, or through simply reading history, if a Nazir could read history and find that his predecessor, King Pharaoh, who was also king of Egypt, much more powerful than himself, this king of Egypt was destroyed because of his attacks against the Jews. His country, the vast wealth of Egypt, the Gemara says Egypt was the wealthiest country in the world. His country became impoverished. The leaders of his country were wiped out in the plagues and in the plague at the Red Sea. How come that Nasser himself, at that time, Yemashwar, did not recognize this, did not understand this same thing would happen to himself? Or present-day Sadat, Yemashwar too. Doesn't he read past history? How about all the enemies of the Jews, past and recent ones? Didn't they realize that the same fate must befall them? Does each one really think that he'll be the first one to succeed in this battle against the Jews? As we said, they are not dumb. Surely have some kind of understanding and wisdom. What prods them? What propels them in a direction that is obviously suicidal. They must understand that if they're going to attack the Jews, their success will be very temporary. They will eventually be wiped out. Why do they do this? We can understand, if we look at recent history, and to take the blinders off our eyes, it is about time. Those who knew, who understood this at the time, were well informed. And yet it was practically impossible to convince others then. During the Second World War, Hitler and Aschenau set his mind, his entire goal was not the conquest of the world, 
his goal in truth was the destruction of the Jews because he was the Russia, he was the Amalek. He set his mind to destroy and to wipe out the Jews. The one haven of refuge, the one place where Jews were safe, the one place where Jews considered a country, a land of freedom, and a land of plenty, a land of freedom of religion and faith, was America. Especially since America was governed, led by a president who was allegedly, presumably, a friend of the Jews, President Roosevelt. Now, at that time, the Jews felt that this was their true friend in the White House and that he was going out into battle, setting up the vast war machinery of America, going to battle to defeat Hitler because of the fact that he was a friend of the Jews. What else? Aside from the fact, of course, that America itself was threatened. The fact was, the fact is, that there was very little difference between Hitler and Roosevelt. Roosevelt was one who did the same work as Hitler very subtly, very subtly. He did not show his anti-Semitism openly. In fact, it was so well hidden. I recall the time that Roosevelt peggered when he died. I lived in Brighton at the time, without mentioning a name, but there was one of the shuls here, as well as many others throughout the country, that issued a call to all Jews to attend a memorial meeting of this great leader, this great benefactor of the Jews, who had died so suddenly, who had been summoned to his well-deserved place in Gehenna to arrange the meeting there between himself and his cohort, Hitler. Now, I got, by the way, there are people who ask, what is the meaning of the word gematria? Hebrew word gematria means numerical value. We always compare two things. If the gematria is the same, we find in the Gemara, the Zayda Kodesh, and so on. For them, it is a lesson that there is some comparison, some similarity, a similarity. For instance, the word mar, the Zayda Kodesh, mar means bitter, poison. Mar, bigimatria, amolek. There's a reason for it. Ahavdil, Asher Abeno, bigimatria 613 exactly, because he taught the Torah to the Jews, 613 mitzvahs, who's the symbol People say, I can make gematrias too. The answer is that it's not just making gematrias. There has to be something deeper than that. You could say, of course, that Cranston be gematria Scranton. There's, there's no, has to be some kind of a, a lesson involved. But when there is a definite clear point that can be brought out, it is obvious that there is a direct connection. And so it is not for nothing that when spelled properly, properly means in its correct Hebrew letters, the only ones that we take gematrias from, spelled exactly, Hitler, is bigimatria exactly Roosevelt. Exactly. <laughs> Which means that they were one. It was one evil soul divided into two parts, half in one and half in the other. So it was a tragic pity that at that time this fact was not seen by many Jews, we'd say by most, that Roosevelt was one of the greatest son a Yisrael in the world and in history. Because we accuse status fact that Roosevelt and Mark could have saved vast numbers, multitudes of Jews 
at the time very easily the offer was given to him he turned it down because of his sinner's hatred to the Jews today the precious refugees from Southeast Asia are taken into America with open hands and open hearts we do not object to that they are humans they should be saved but it is a pitiful comparison to the time when the previous president at that time Roosevelt who was certainly the same company is now together with his friend Hitler the same warm climate the south where they will be permanently forever after we find of course that uh, in the future later on we've had other presidents this is to again to remove the illusion that America is friendly to the Jews to this day whenever there is the opportunity for anything to be done against the Jews they are as willing and able as the open enemies I got 1956 Sinai campaign when America for the first time joined ranks with the Russians against Israel never happened that these two should become such bosom pals Yet against Israel, they were united. Why? Because the head of America was Eisenhower. Eisenhower, again spelled properly, is Bigimatria Homon Amalek. Exactly. <laughs> as far as our great distinguished leader of the present day is concerned, he does not require any Gimatria, the word Ford. Ford or Fared, <laughs> and the Hebrew is Fared, which means a unintelligent horse. <laughs> State Department too. We don't have to go into that. But we're back to the question, though. The question we began was an outstanding point. It does require clarification. How come that these enemies of the Jews throughout history did not learn their lesson from the past? Surely they must realize that they are not going to be unique to establish for themselves a special place in history as the first ones who have succeeded against the Jews. Do they really think that in their heart? Certainly not. They know that they're not as great as the vast empires that existed before, and they can see that one of the worst enemies of the Jews, one who came closest to accomplishing that fate, was Hitler Hitler. And instead of accomplishing it, the exact opposite turned out. The Jews rose up as the phoenix from ashes and became a nation in Israel for the first time since the Gullus of the Roman Empire. So this should certainly be enlightening to those who want to oppose the Jews. And yet today we find that the world is united, completely, steadfastly united, in an insane attempt at self-destruction by going against the Jews. Why? The answer is that the nature of the non-Jewish mind is such that his hatred for the Jews is so great he is willing to leap into the fire and destroy himself if he can harm the Jews. The basis for this we find from Amalek. Amalek was the first tribe to attack the Jews when they left Egypt. Amalek was not blind. They saw the miracles that Hashem performed for the Jews against the country that was thousands of times greater and stronger than Amalek was. Egypt was the empire of the world then. Amalek saw that the Jews were 
guided by, protected by a heavenly power, a heavenly force, that could perform such miracles that were unparalleled. The dividing of the waters of the Red Sea, the destruction of the vast Egyptian army then, what prompted Amalek to leap into the fire? And as the Amalek came upon the Jews and attacked them, and the Gemara compares that to a person jumping into a stream or a pool of boiling water or boiling oil. What does he accomplish? He knows he'll be destroyed, he'll be scalded to death. He'll make that pool a little cooler, a cool off that pool. Amalek knew that it was going on a suicidal attempt to harm the Jews, it was worth it for them, as long as they would release within others the fear that held them back, relieve them of that fear, to ease that fear in other nations. And this is why, because Amalek was the first one to attack the Jews, this is the reason why Hashem himself cursed Amalek with an eternal curse. It shall be a war of battle against Amalek forever until Mashiach comes, and they'll be destroyed completely. This is the core, the root of the sinner, the hatred of Goyim against Jews, even if it means their self-destruction. Today we have something against zoological, United Nations, over a hundred nations combined. Where is their sense of fair play? Does that sound reasonable to them? All these nations combined should sort of gang up against tiny little Israel, and with the united attempt to destroy it, Chassashor. In their hearts, they may possibly believe that in the end they'll be wiped out themselves. But this is a case of emotion overpowering logic. The emotion, the hatred is so great that they disregard whatever the future holds for them in order to do harm to the Jews. This is the answer, the reason for the subsequent action of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Russia, the evil one at that time. Nebuchadnezzar, who had just been shown so clear a lesson by Daniel, Daniel who proved to him the power of Hashem, and that he should certainly not do any harm or anything at all, any action against faith in Hashem. Yet shortly afterwards, Nebuchadnezzar himself erected a statue. This statue was 60 amos tall, which means between 90 and 120 feet tall. Extremely tall statue, six amos in depth, and he set this up in the valley of Dura, special valley in Babel, Babylon, which is Iraq today. <clears throat> and then he invited all the leaders of Bavel and custom to issue an order. It's going to be a special celebration for the erection of this statue, this figure, and when the signal is given, that is when they hear the sound of music, special music being played, music with a number of instruments, as though a symphony type of orchestra, that music begins to play, Everyone is commanded to come forth and to bow before this statue. Nebuchadnezzar knew what was his motive. He knew that the statue was not real. 
New York says, how did he get the statue to play this music? He placed a special power. He wrote down a special name, put it into the mouth of the statue, and he drew the special power of this name, holy name. The music came forth from the statue, certain other words, but he knew that there was no victory in having the other nations bow to the statue. What could he gain? It was no personal gain, nothing to be proud of. His motive was to get the Jews to bow to the statue, to force every single Jew alive then to bow to this figure, the statue, and thereby ensure himself that there would be no Moshiach for the Jews, that the dream he had, the interpretation, would prove to be false. He would undo the dream and the prediction of that dream by having the Jews worship this idol, thereby lose their right to protection by Hashem and to being selected by Hashem as Hashem's people. So he had the statue prepared, and he gave the signal at a certain time when all people must come forward, and they did. Very sadly, the question, the, the penalty, the threat was placed upon the people. Again, the Goyim required no threat. To them it meant nothing. For the sake of the Jews, he said that when they have a special pit of fire, that is, the fire is of such intensity it could destroy, consume a person in a moment. Any person who does not bow to this statue will be cast into this fiery pit and burned to death. This was the penalty for refusal to bow. So, the Yomara says that very sadly, everyone came. Daniel at the time was not present in that land. He had been sent on a mission to Egypt. So not being present, the situation did not present itself, but he could, he could challenge the order of the king. But his three friends, Ananya, Michel, and Azariah, were present, and the costume came forth to the king and reported, he spoke slanderously of these three who had refused to bow before the king's statue. King, in anger, summoned these three friends of Daniel, three prophets before him, and he said to them, you realize the danger you're in now, because this is your last chance. You have not bowed until now. I order you now to bow before the statue and be thrown into this fire, this pit of fire. Three replied to the king. The reply was very straightforward. They said, you forget too quickly that we are a member of the Jewish people. Our Hashem is a Hashem of miracles. We are not afraid of fire, because Hashem creates fire. Hashem can withhold the power of fire. You cannot threaten us by throwing us into the fire. We respect you as a king, of course. That is the rule. But our respect for you as a king is only up to the point that where you have rights, you can issue an order for us to pay taxes, to serve you as your subjects. But when it comes to serving Hashem, then you have no power over us whatsoever. You are the same as a dog. The call of Buchanetzer, the king of the world, a dog, this was one of the most dire insults possible. The king said to them that I'm going to have this pit of fire heated up to seven times its original temperature. Seven times as hot. Of course, what that accomplishes was only to make it more frightening because the results will be the same. 
person would be killed in that fire the way it was before, seven times more heat wouldn't do any more harm to the person. Just the frightening point about it, which failed to frighten these three. These three said to the king, we want you to know that we are going into this fire willingly with the hope that Hashem will save us. But if we do not deserve to be saved by Hashem, if we are not worthy, we are still going into this fire happily for the sake of dying for our religion, for our faith. Do not hesitate for one moment, because we have learned a lesson from ones that are far beneath us. Remember the story of the ten plagues in Egypt. Everything is a messenger of Hashem. Ten plagues too, and Hashem sent the wild animals roaming through Egypt. These wild animals were messengers. They were on a mission to carry out the mission to destroy the Egyptians. The second plague, the plague of frogs. These frogs were living things. They were sent into Egypt because Hashem commanded them. Now, these frogs seemed to be very subhuman in intellect. Yet one thing they understood, they were performing an act which was in accordance with the command of Hashem. And so they showed their devotion to Hashem as the Torah tells us, the frogs entered into the land of Egypt, into the homes of the Egyptians, into their food, into their closets, and into their burning ovens. Frogs could have easily have avoided the burning ovens. We could have gone to each one would have said, I'll take the, the living room, the bedroom. Why go into the oven? But these frogs vied for the privilege of dying on this mission, this holy mission. Uh, these frogs could be so loyal to Hashem, surely we can take a lesson from that, and we too will act accordingly. The pit was heated up, as the king ordered, and then the king said, now take these men and throw them in. They were first bound with heavy rope. Before this, they got dressed in their robes. They wore high officials in the government. They put on their best clothes, best robes, because they said this is a, an important event for themselves. It will either be a miracle recorded in history, or else the privilege of dying for their faith. So dressed in all their regalia and tied up, they were taken by the soldiers and thrown into the pit. The fire was so intense that the soldiers who threw them from a distance were burnt instantly, were killed from this fire. And these three were thrown into this pit, and the Buchanetzer, from a very safe distance, watched them. With trepidation, he felt that there was something strange about the way they spoke, and he felt deep inside of himself he was about to witness a miracle. He watched in awe, he stood looking for a while, and then said, called out, strangest thing, Possible. I see once thrown into the pit walking through the fire, through the flames. But what is most strange is that we threw three into this pit and I see four. There are four walking through this fire. The first three are Chananya Mishael Nazaria. But the fourth one looks like an angel, the appearance of an angel. Of course, 
question is, how could Nebuchadnezzar, this Tomei king, how would he know what an angel looks like? After all, how would he have the privilege of ever seeing one? How could he recognize an angel? Yora says because Nebuchadnezzar had once witnessed an angel in action. When Sancher, the king of Ashur, had sent his general Rabshakeh to King Cheskiyahu to attack Jerusalem, if you recall your Navi story recently, that they surrounded Jerusalem, and that night Hashem sent an angel of death down and killed 185,000 officers plus a vast number of soldiers. In addition to that, all of them were wiped out except a handful. One of that handful was Nebuchadnezzar, who then served Sancherev, king of Ashur, later became the king of Babel himself. He witnessed this miracle, he witnessed this plague. And with his eyes he could see this angel of death, sowing death among all these soldiers present. So he knew what an angel looked like, and now he could recognize that the fourth one walking through this fire was an angel. This was the angel Gabriel, who was the angel of Barod, hailstones or ice. And as they walked, he cooled off the heat, the fire in front of himself and these three. They walked safely through the fire. At that point, Nebuchadnezzar could not contain himself. At distance, he called out to the three, please come out of the fire and come towards me, speak to me. They walked out safely. They came to Nebuchadnezzar and he inspected them. He saw that there was no trace of even their clothes being singed. Not only they were rescued from the fire, but even their clothes remained intact. In fact, there was no trace of any smell of smoke about them. It was as though they had walked into a place that was cool, aromatic. So in awe, he stood there and he said, I see now that I was very wrong. Therefore, he said, I want to show my repentance sorrow for what happened, I issue an order now that any person in my kingdom who will speak against Hashem, then he is doomed. He himself will be put to death, and his home will be destroyed completely, because there is no power in existence aside from Hashem. So he elevated these three now, position higher than all the officers of his land at that time. Well, this was the second phase chapter of Nebuchadnezzar, and it would seem that this should suffice. We come to the third, sort of the last chapter of Nebuchadnezzar, in the case of Daniel, where again, this third chapter deals with a dream. It seems he was a very dreamy type of person. This dream, he did not forget. This dream he recalled very distinctly, and it upset him no end too. This, after it was over, he wrote special letters throughout all the kingdoms, all his lands, to publicize this incident, the dream, and the results of this dream, and let it be known throughout which of course shows that he was willing or frightened enough to have this publicized, something which could bring disgrace to himself. In his dream, he saw something which frightened him extremely. He called 
his wise men, interpreters, magicians forward, and told them, this time you have a test. Last time I had a dream, I forgot the dream itself. You claimed it was impossible to find out, to feel, to detect what that dream is. I'm going to tell you the dream. I'm asking you only to interpret it. Not one of the wise, wise men, quotation marks, could of course interpret this dream because the Torah says that interpretations of dreams can only be made by one who has contact knowledge from Hashem. How does one get knowledge from Hashem to interpret dreams? The answer is if Hashem tells you the interpretation of a dream, you know it. Anybody can get that done. Any person today can get it done too. You make contact with Hashem, ask Hashem for the interpretation of the dream, and he tells it to you. Every single person can do that today. Because each person today can receive direct word from Hashem very easily. The direct word from Hashem is Hashem's written word in the Torah. The Torah is the word of Hashem. Hashem is the author. These are his words, and in the Torah we find the interpretation of dreams. To a degree, of course, you have to have a deeper understanding of the Gemara, the Zorah Kodesh, but we find a number of dreams interpreted in Torah. And so, today it's much simpler than it was then. At that time, it required real contact, which, of course, Daniel had as a sort of prophet, Kodesh. But none of these so-called wise men of Bavel could do this, so Nebuchadnezzar was forced to go back to Daniel again, plead with him to interpret this dream. In the dream he said he saw a tree of unusual height. The tree had its roots implanted very deeply in the ground, very solidly. It's very solid roots. The tree itself was gigantic in size, in width, in scope, and in height. The tree actually reached up to the skies. The branches of the tree were so vast, the leaves of the tree were so many, and the sight of the tree could be seen from every corner of the earth. The fruit growing on a tree was enough to provide food and nourishment for the entire world. A tree is made for shade. In the shade of the tree, all the animals of the world were able to stand. On the branches of the tree, all the birds in the world were able to roost. This was the size of the tree that he saw. Then, to his dismay, he saw an angel come forth. He saw what was described as Ir Bekadish Min Shmaya Nochis. An angel descended from heaven, and a loud booming voice called out, cut that tree down. This order of the angel frightened him, and of course there was a second order given by this angel too. A very special angel because the Venezuel brings these words to represent the letters make up the word of Ishimon. We've had this uh, Nagbona. This, the rest of this dream which again required interpretation by Daniel. We will continue next week in Mitzvah And we can look forward to some very enlightening facts in the continued story of Daniel. Above all, remember that our main lesson is to learn from this true faith in Hashem. 
faith that should be unwavering in the part of any Jew, faith in Hashem and faith in Sadiqim, because it is that faith which is the key, as we see now, the key for the coming of Mashiach. If we strengthen ourselves with that faith, we'll be deserving, we'll merit, but with our eyes we will see now the coming of Mashiach, rebuilding the Beis HaMikdash, the destruction of all the enemies.